Thank you so much. Let's just pray, shall we? And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. What we really need this morning, Lord Jesus, is to see your face, to behold you, and having beheld you, to be made like you. We beg you that you would show us yourself in your word again today. Be with us by the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, open your Bibles again back to Mark chapter 2. We're on a journey through Mark's gospel called The World Turned Upside Down. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Mike. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, the first 11 years of my working life were actually in the business world. I did a whole range of different jobs. And then Melissa, my wife, and I were sent by the church leaders into full-time Christian ministry. And, but really our training was during those 11 years here, uh, working and serving in the church. That was the training. But the education was at college, theological college. And we moved to Boston and studied full-time. I actually ended up studying full-time for four years. Now, that is a lot of time spent reading books, isn't it? It was a privilege to learn under world-class scholars. The education was extraordinary. But, you know, there was one story that I heard during that time that shaped us and shaped our ministry as much as anything else. And it wasn't a deep theological insight. It wasn't a great Bible lesson. It was just a story. In fact, it was a kind of confession. It was told by a wonderful professor called Dr. Gary Parrott. P-A-R-R-E-T-T, not parrot. His parents weren't Christians. And he told us about a time where his parents had thrown a, they would regularly throw parties at their house and invite everyone because Gary Parrott's parents were very warm and inclusive people. And they'd invite the whole street. And he's, Gary said that he and his wife went to one of these parties and the party was rocking. It was pretty lively booze was flowing. Now, Gary and his wife were Bible-believing Christians. They didn't approve of what they saw. They walked around with their noses in the air, looking down on people, and they decided to leave quickly. But as they were leaving, a neighbor, who was slightly the worst for wear, grabbed them as they were about to leave the house. And he said, you two think you're pretty high and mighty, but let me tell you something. Your parents really love people. Ouch. Gary Parrott's story was haunting because I could see myself in it. A person who knew the Bible. A person who'd been taught how Christians should live. And yet, a person whose heart was often proud and could look down on other people because of those very things. The Bible and knowing how to live. And because of that pride, Look down on other people. And what we find today in our reading is that Jesus must change that heart. Now, Mark's gospel is the story of the world turned upside down. In the first two and a bit pages, we've met Jesus, who this story is all about. And we've, he's, we've seen him announce the kingdom of God is near. It's right in front of you, if you can see it. And then he gives a royal summons. Repent. 
which means change the entire direction of your life, turn around. And we've heard the call to change given to those, the call to change who we are following. Like those fishermen who heard Jesus say, come follow me. And they immediately left their career, left their family, left their way of life, left their identity and followed him. They packed it all in and followed Jesus. That's his call. If you follow Jesus, all of you goes in. And we've heard a challenge about the way we should view ourselves. According to Jesus, we are all, without exception, sinners in need of forgiveness. And we have two pictures of that. One is the leper, who was the most unclean person in that culture. And one was the paralyzed man who was literally unable to help himself. And that is the picture of us in our sins. Unclean and unable. And that, therefore, is our biggest problem, is our own sin. And as I pointed out last week, unless you admit that you are a moral failure, you cannot be a Christian. This is the story that changes everything. And today we find Jesus turns religion upside down. He turns religion upside down. And Chris just read us four stories in quick succession. And they're all stories of conflict. They're all stories about a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. There were four main religious groups at that time in Israel. The Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. You've probably heard of some of them. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducee. It never gets old, that, that one. It never gets old. I don't care, I'm a dad. That's the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were the biggest group, and they were by far the most popular and the most influential. Now, what comes to mind if you hear the word Pharisee? Someone's a Pharisee. If you've been around church for any time at all, you probably have an image. It's almost like the pantomime villain. You know the one who comes behind the curtain? Ooh, behind you, Pharisee. I looked up the word Pharisee in my laptop dictionary, and it, the word is, is in there, and it says this, <clears throat> a self-righteous person, a hypocrite. Now, that actually is quite unfair for these Pharisees. It is a caricature. They were very highly regarded people, in their times, they had a heroic past. This movement of Pharisees had been around for about 200 years. The Pharisees had emerged during a time of moral compromise in the nation, and they'd stood up for God and his word, and they, many of them had actually been killed for it by an oppressive regime. At one time, hundreds of Pharisees were all crucified down both sides of the road. People knew about this story. These are heroic people who, who want to serve God. They're passionate about keeping God's law and being pure and honoring God with all of life. But they weren't sort of radical monks living off in the desert somewhere. They were integrated into society. So they would have regular jobs, but they'd be really passionate about keeping God's word. So you might think, wouldn't you, that they would get along great with Jesus. Surely they're all on the same page. Wrong. They actually turn out to be the persistent opponents of Jesus. And as we go through this gospel story, we often find them shooting at him from the sidelines. Now, we have to realize that there are two groups of people around Jesus most of the time. When you read the gospels, there's almost always these two groups present. There are those who live an immoral lifestyle. They are not into religion. 
They make up their own rules for life. And they're over here. And then on, over here, the other group is the religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes and others. These are the people who are trying to live morally and following the traditions of the elders, which are based on God's word. And in the Gospels, these two groups are always turning up. They're always present in the room. But the really fascinating thing is that the immoral, the irreligious people are always attracted to Jesus. And when these groups are in the same group room, guess what happens? It's the immoral people, the irreligious people who understand Jesus the fastest. They understand grace quicker. They get it. And it's the moral people, it's the religious people who are always confused by Jesus. They're always angry. They're offended by him. They don't get it so interesting. And that's why Jesus at one point actually says in Matthew 21, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of heaven before you. These Pharisees and scribes are always nervous about Jesus. And when the gospel message is communicated to this day, immoral and broken and irreligious people are attracted to it. And traditional, moral, religious people tend to be confused by it. And that's what happens in our passage today. And just notice, by the way, that by the end of the section, the religious guys have decided to kill him. That's where your religion can take you. I want to go through these four stories quickly and then unpack the implications for our lives before we come to the Lord's Supper. Three issues are covered here. Sinners, fasting, and Sabbath. These are the three issues around which the stories revolve. The sinners, sinners, air quote, Fasting and Sabbath. So sinners, back with me uh, please to uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Verse 14, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi is at his booth. He's, he's um, working in a border town. And he is a collector of the tolls. The taxes for people coming over the border. He's not a tax baron. He's a tax agent. His job is to collect the money and give the money to the authorities, which is the Roman government. Now, these tax collectors were held in utter contempt and loathing by most of the Jewish people because they were seen as collaborators with the enemy. So this is an occupied country. Imagine... France, occupied by Nazi Germany in the Second World War. It's under this government of people who are sort of serving the enemy. And the tax collectors are the ones taking the money for the enemy. So you can already get a sense of, of how they were viewed. But the other thing about them, that these tax collectors were known for their greed and extortion. Because not only did they work for the enemy, but they were also serving themselves. So if you are collecting tax, you can also take a little bit extra skim it off the top. So the tax collectors became very rich at the expense of their own people. So you get in a sense now of how much they were hated. It's a cross between a traffic warden and a paedophile. Religiously impure and unclean. Jesus really shouldn't be recruiting this guy to the team. Terrible recruitment choice. But he does call him. Follow me, same thing, 
And Levi does follow, just like the fisherman. And notice, following Jesus is going to cost him a lot more than it costs the fisherman, isn't it? Because they can always go back to fishing, not this guy. He's done. And then in verse 15, we find Jesus is having dinner at his house. Verse 15, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here they all are. And it says that they, he's having dinner. And the language there, the literal language, is reclining at table. Because you, you may know that people in that time would, would, would lie down. We sit up to eat. They recline and eat. And they would lean on each other. Men would lean on each other. And it's very intimate. You may remember, remember in John's Gospel, uh, it talks about the young disciple leaning on Jesus' chest. It's that intimate. I'm not into it myself. But, you know, they, they used to do that. <laughs> Keep out of my space. Now, wh what is he doing here, eating with them? Culturally, this is saying, I accept you. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I accept you. Intimate table fellowship. And so by this very association, Jesus himself is now tarnished. And he's seen as corrupted. Hence the question in verse 16. The teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, and they asked the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, wh who are these sinners? Sinner was a word that was, had a wide range of use, used by the religious insiders. So they could say a sinner was an actual criminal or a crook, or a sinner might be somebody who's known for an immoral lifestyle, a, an addict, a prostitute, or those who are just outside of the respectable religious world, like shepherds. Shepherds were seen as, as sinners. You know, pretty dirty, living out on the fields. Goodness knows what they're doing up there. Those and others like them were all shunned by those who, who weren't sinners, thought they, they didn't see themselves as sinners. Uh, people who can break a microphone just by talking to it. And verse 15b says that many of these people follow Jesus. They are the ones that get him. They love him. They want to be near him. And Jesus gives this quite ironic response in verse 17. He says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, you know, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, you know, imagine a doctor who insisted that the patients got better before they were allowed to see him. You phone up the GP surgery. Are you, have you recovered yet? No, I'm still ill. Well, call back when you're well, please. Then the doctor will see you. It's just it's ironic. Ridiculous. Jesus says, I'm a doctor. Think of me as a doctor. I've come for the sick. I've come to heal sinners. But what does he really mean? He doesn't mean that the, these Pharisees aren't sinners and that the people that with him are. He means, I've come for those who know they're sinful and know they need a savior. I've come for them. And if you're not in that group, then I'm not here for you. And the so-called righteous people, self-consciously righteous, are actually self-righteous. And they think they aren't that sinful, and therefore they don't need a savior. That's the first thing, sinners. Secondly, fasting. Fasting. Fasting was evidently a characteristic of John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees themselves. In verse 18, it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people come and they ask Jesus, how is it that John's disciples 
And the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't. See how everyone's kind of speaking at him all the time? Now, we know from other sources that these Pharisees would often fast for two days a week. Isn't there a diet that does that? 5-2 or something? Anyway, sidebar. <laughs> Why would you do that? Fasting is a way of creating intense focus and concentration on God. People fast and pray. It's a practice all through the Bible. It's also a spiritual discipline connected with repenting. Our Anglican friends do this during Lent. You give something up to focus and, and remind yourself of repentance. Fasting makes you feel low and gloomy, doesn't it? That's why so many of us have already abandoned our New Year diet. Fasting makes you feel low and gloomy. Doing it is a way of humbling yourself before God. Now, notice the Old Testament law only actually required one fasting for one day a year requirement of the law, and that was the Day of Atonement. All the other fasts are optional. So this program of fasting that these guys have, very intensive, is actually their own choice and their own tradition. It's not required by God. But behind this question, why do they fast and your disciples don't, is a judgmental spirit. Hold on, Jesus. If you want to get taken seriously as some sort of spiritual leader, you better get your guys fasting. The other ones are doing it. Your men they're looking a little bit chubby. And Jesus replies, friends, imagine a wedding. Verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him. How can the guests fast with, when they're with me? Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. And everybody in that culture knew how ridiculous it would be to fast at a wedding. Weddings could last Seven days. Imagine that. Imagine how tired your face would be from smiling. If you were on the guest list of a wedding, your only responsibility was to turn up and enjoy yourself. They would eat, drink, and make merry for a full week. Can you imagine the bill? My days. Seven days of feasting. But behind this, by the way, is an astonishing claim to those who know their Bible. There's only one bridegroom of Israel in the Bible, and it is God himself. Here's the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. God is the bridegroom. Isaiah 62, no longer will they call you deserted or your, name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God, the only true God, is the bridegroom of Israel. And so what Jesus is saying, subtly, is a claim to deity in no uncertain terms. Now, if Jesus had just come out right out with it and said, I am God, it could easily be misunderstood in that culture. 
a culture that had many, many different gods all around. Somebody saying, I am God, just fits into that framework. But if he says, I am the bridegroom, there's only one person that fits that bill. The God of Israel. And then he tells two little parables, verses 21 and 22. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the skins will be ruined. Now they pour new wine into new wineskins. What he's saying here is, now that I'm here, something new has begun. The new gospel of the new kingdom of God is like new wine. It can't be contained in your old structures. It will rip apart the old ways of thinking and the old habits and the old practices. And any previous religious practice comes under scrutiny. You can't contain it. It's like new wine. It will burst out. Jesus' coming brings something so powerful and new that it cannot be contained in the existing forms. He's saying, now that I am here, there's no longer any need for fasting and preparation and gloom and deprivation. Now is the time for joy. Now is the time for celebration. The bridegroom is here. And in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate with a little cup and a little bit of bread. And it's a little tiny little picture of the future feast that all God's people will be brought into. The eschatological banquet. The end of days. Because Jesus has come. So Christians, the Apostle Paul says it to the Philippians, I, I want to remain here for your progress and joy in the faith. Joy is your birthright as a Christian. Don't let anyone take it away from you. So we thought about sins, we thought about fasting. Thirdly, we're thinking about Sabbath. Verse 2 to 23, sorry, chapter 2, verse 23 to 3.6. And you notice there's all this stuff about the Sabbath. First of all, there's a... Um, going through the fields, picking the corn, and it's on the Sabbath. And then secondly, there's a man who gets healed on the Sabbath. So it's all around this Sabbath. Now, what is the Sabbath? Any of you know um, Spanish? You know the word for Saturday, sabado? And the Sabbath is the day of rest. Actually, begins on Friday evening and finishes on Saturday at sundown. But it's, it's a time of absolute, holy, sacred time for Jewish people to this day and for the Israelites going back. It was a time that God had given to them, a day of rest in a culture that worked 24-7. All the other nations worked every hour, not Israel. They were commanded to rest for one day a week. And their scriptures reminded them that God himself, the great creator, was also a worker who had built a world, built a, a universe, and on the seventh day, he rested and called it holy. A day to enjoy God's creation. It was enshrined in their, their law, in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And two reasons were given. One, because they, knew, they had a God who rested on the seventh day. And two, because they themselves had been slaves in Egypt and had been rescued from slavery and brought into God's family, they could now rest. So the Sabbath is a very precious, very beautiful day, a great thing. And resting one day a week is a great creation rhythm for us. It was so important. It was the thing, one of the things that marked out these people from the rest of the world around. Now, verse 23, we get this challenge about the Sabbath. 
Have a look there in your Bible, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfield, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. Imagine these guys are a bit peckish, and they're just walking along, and as they're walking, they just, yeah, have you ever done this in a field? Just picked a few heads, just chomping it. And there, behind the corn, <laughs> are these Pharisees. How are they there? How, how did they get there? You know, they're like watching him. Look, I think I saw someone pick some corn. Let's get him. <laughs> and here they are. They appear. Look, what are, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Fingers wagging. Never point a finger, they told me in preaching class. So aggressive. Why are they pick it, doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And they think they've really got him now. Oh, we got him. Corn on the Sabbath? You know, we've really got him now. Now, technically, they weren't breaking the Sabbath because this isn't farming. Uh, But it is forbidden by the strict traditions of the Pharisees who try to define work down to the last detail so that you've got the commandment, but you've also got this hedge around the commandment with loads of small print and niggly rules that you're bound to get wrong at some point. And Jesus doesn't cave at all. He gives them another challenge and another bold response. Have a look at that, verse 24. They say, why are they doing what's unlawful? And Jesus replies, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So he's citing an incident from the Old Testament, which they knew, When King David himself, the great king, had gone into the temple and taken some of the special bread, sacred bread, and just used it to feed himself and his friends. And Jesus is saying, they went into the holy place, they ate the bread, only the priest is supposed to eat it, and that was fine. It was an allowable infringement. Jesus is saying, the point of the Sabbath day was to serve human life, not constrain it, to make people sure that people take time to rest and recreate, not starve themselves because of the letter of the law. And then he adds this really audacious claim in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, that's him, is Lord even of the Sabbath. I get to decide what it means and how to interpret it. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the one who delivers what the Sabbath was actually intended for, as we see in the fourth story. Because here there's a man with a shriveled hand. And this is a culture, bear in mind, there's no social security, there's no NHS, there's no disability benefits. If you can't work with your hands, you're in great trouble. This is a man whose hand is shriveled and his life is, is, is much, much more difficult because of that disability. And here Jesus is, and he's in the place of worship, the synagogue, and this man is there, and some of them are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They're watching, you know, again, they're watching him closely. What's he going to do? Is he going to heal him? And Jesus decides he's going to make it very public. He says to the man, stand up in front of everyone. And then he says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he says to them, stretch out your hand, and his hand is completely healed. Now the answer is to the question is obvious, isn't it? Which is lawful to do good or evil, to save life or take it? 
but their hearts are so hardened against Jesus that they now will use observance of their religion to hate him. And Jesus has just done what the Sabbath is all about, restoration. In the most beautiful picture of this man who's now gazing at his newly healed hand. Jesus can restore us. And what do the religious guardians of the nation do? They go out and plot how to kill him. And they are plotting on the Sabbath. Don't you think it's strange that they're so angry? Just because of some infringements of their rules, that they break in traditions, that they should plot to kill him? What is going on? And the reason they are so offended is that Jesus has challenged their whole identity and their way to be saved. We tend to think of sin in terms of certain behaviors, sins, this or that or the other. So we think of sins as breaking God's rules for behavior, which is part of it. But sin is much deeper than that. Sin goes down to the core of who you are. And the essence of sin is this, that we want to be our own Lord and our own Savior. And all the little sins are the things that flow out of that. At the heart level, we want to be our own Lord and Savior. We, we're saying deep down, I, I can run life my way. And I don't need to depend on God. Now, irreligious people do this by breaking free of traditions. The traditions of their parents, their religion. And they make their own rules for life. But religious people do it too. And they do it by keeping all the rules. Maybe adding some more of their own. But doing it in order to be their own Lord and Savior. I can earn salvation. Thank you very much. I don't need to be dependent. They are working very, very hard to do the right thing so that they can be their own Lord and Savior. And when you meet someone who is living like that, and churches are full of them, and they're challenged about the effectiveness of their religion, they are angry. And all hell breaks loose. Because the one thing they really depend on is their own goodness. So they're fiercely defensive and angry if anyone questions their religion. How dare you? This is Richard Lovelace, a great scholar of the spiritual life. He says, uh, people whose understanding of sin focuses upon externals which they can eliminate from their life by a little willpower, will ignore the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surface. Thus their Pharisaism defends them against full involvement in the church's mission and against full subjection of their inner life to the authority of Jesus. But this life doesn't satisfy the conscience. Consciously, they defend themselves as dedicated Christians who are as good as anybody else. But underneath, there's deep despair and self-rejection. Above the surface, it often manifests itself in hostility, which focuses upon other people in critical judgment. Thus, a congregation of Christians who are insecure in their relationship to Christ can be a thornbush of criticism, rejection, estrangement, and party spirit. Ever been in a church like that? Are we like that? 
Now, what Jesus does here is challenge their view of who should be accepted by welcoming those who are deemed sinners and unworthy. And he challenges what their view of religion is like by refusing to make his followers fast and be gloomy. No, I'm here, he says, you should be full of joy. And he walks over their precious rules about Sabbath day observance, claiming the rights of a king and the interpreting power of God. He says, in effect, God gave you the Sabbath for healing and restoration. I'm giving it back. Jesus has just taken a wrecking ball back into their entire system of self-justification. And he's done so by making clear claims to deity. A wrecking ball to the system of self-justification. So let me ask you, friends, as we come to the table in a minute, are you depending on your religion here today? Or are you depending only on Jesus Christ and his gospel? What are you depending on? The great irony of this section is that the people who most need saving are the religious ones. They're in church. They give. They serve. They're on the rotund. And they're the ones who look really good, but they're actually the ones who are furthest from Jesus, and in the end they will kill him. What we learn here is the terrible danger of our own good deeds. Because they can blind us to the reality of our heart and its plight. And then how great is our darkness? And who can save us from ourselves? John Gerstner said, The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Because we can think we're so good we don't really need Jesus. Here's how we know we're in trouble. How do you pray? Are your prayers orthodox and full of truth but dry? Are your prayers self-centered with lots of asking but very little thanking? Or are your prayers full of gratitude, adoration, love? How do you view people who sin and fail? In your heart, do you really look down on them and disapprove of them? You're a little bit smug. Well, I haven't done that. You're tutting. Or do you feel a sense of identification? Oh, my sorrow. There but for the grace of God go I. And wishing for them to be restored and to turn back. How do you respond when you fail? Because we all do. We are all failures. Remember this. We're all broken. When you fail, do you overreact? Are you destroyed by it? Are you full of disgust at yourself and full of self-loathing? And you say, I've blown it. I, 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 it's, I'm so awful, I can't forgive myself. That is a sign of someone who is trying to keep the rules to save themselves at their heart level. Or do you respond with sorrow? Yes, but quick repentance and turning to the Lord once more and gladly moving on. Do that in a few minutes at the Lord's table. That's what it's there for. You see, Jesus Christ and his good news says that you are more wicked, corrupt, unclean and sinful than you ever realized. And you are more freely loved, welcomed and accepted in Jesus than you could ever have dreamed. Wicked and sinful like the leper and the paralyzed man, images of us, loved and accepted, reclining at the table, leaning on his bosom with the sinners. That's an image of what Jesus Christ is offering to us in his gospel. How do we, such as us, get to be loved and accepted like that? 
There's a hint of it already in our text. Chapter 2, verse 20. It's the very first parable in Mark's gospel. And in verse 20, he says this. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. What is he talking about? When was the bridegroom taken from the party? It was at the cross. At the cross, Jesus, the bridegroom, paid the penalty for all our sins and took our place. He was broken so that we could be made whole. He was torn apart so that we could be restored. He bore the penalty due to our sins so that we could walk free. He was shamed so that we could be honored. And on that day they fasted. That is what it cost Jesus Christ to come, to love and accept you. And if you get that message, and we all need to keep getting it again and again every day, then you move from loathing other people to love. Christians love those who are not like them. You move from fasting to feasting. Christians have joy, an ever-swelling spring of joy. And you move from a religion that's all about the rules to a religion that's all about restoration. Christians are concerned to meet the needs of others, to meet the needs of the broken, the hungry, the poor, because we identify with them. They are just like us. And God loves such as these. So as we come to the Lord's table, we come in intimate table fellowship with Jesus. We hear a welcome for sinners. And we see a promise of a future joy that is beyond our wildest imagination. Let's pray.